Let us pray. Our most gracious and holy Father, according to your word, you have given us your Son, that we might be saved. And we pray that you would plant that salvation deep within us, that it would grow forth and grow out of our lives and grow through our lives, and that we would be forever changed and renewed and know the fullness of redemption when our Lord Jesus returns. All of this we ask through your most beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we've entered into this last week of Advent, this fourth week of the season in, of Advent. And here we are given a glimpse into the Annunciation, into the revealing of Jesus to Mary. In our prayer books, this is called Annunciation Sunday, and so it typically focuses on Mary. Last year, as we were going through the Gospel according to Luke, we heard that. We heard of the angel Gabriel going to Mary and telling her and announcing to her that Jesus was being conceived, that she would bear a son, though she was a virgin. But in this year, we hear it from Matthew's perspective. And it's good for us to hear that, to recognize that there were ripples that occurred because of the work of God. But what is easy to miss is the simplicity of this story for Joseph and his response to this story, to the reality of the world around him, to the way things were changing for him and for Mary. And what comes to the forefront as we think about Joseph is that quiet faith that he has. And as a quiet faith that we are all called to, and that that quiet faith is founded upon what Christ came to do and who Christ is in himself. That's right. We are called to a quiet faith like that of Joseph. As St. As Paul speaks in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he tells us to ascribe, to aspire to live quietly in this world, to be faithful in all of our actions, to walk forward and do what God has called us to do, and to always remain faithful in all of our deeds. And that is what we begin to see a picture of in Joseph himself, that he has a quiet faith. He never speaks. Nowhere in the Gospels do we hear words come out of the mouth of Joseph. He just simply is presented to us as one who is considering, one who is thinking deeply. But that quiet faith is founded upon what Christ would do and who Christ is in himself because of what God has promised. And so we hear of the birth of Jesus, the announcement of Jesus. Here in Matthew in chapter 1, verse 18, it just Matthew simply introduces it. Now this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And when her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Here we get to see a picture of the quiet faith of Joseph. That he is not merely engaged to this woman Mary. In this time, to be betrothed to someone was almost being married to them. It was just as much as being married to them. It was a legally binding contract that was entered into before the community. 
They were legally bound together to be together. So much so that they are considered husband and wife in the community. As you can even see just in verse 19, it says, and her husband Joseph. And later on, it will refer to Mary as his wife. Even though they have not come together, living in the same household, being together, but nonetheless, they are considered as married before the community. That is how strong this betrothal commitment is. That is not like in our day and age where you just get engaged and you can break it off at any time and there's no real consequences within the community. It can just end. People may ask questions, people may wonder, but there's no legality to it. It's something that's merely entered into personally. But this is a legally binding contract between the two of them, so much so that Joseph must consider divorce to end the betrothal, that he would write out a certificate of divorce and hand it to Mary before a couple of witnesses. We don't understand necessarily. The context is so strange to us to hear of this idea. He thinks that she may have been unfaithful, so therefore he must end their relationship. But there is shame that would be borne by him that he cannot bear. It is a shame that he cannot bear and that the community would heap upon him. That he is unwilling to bear at this time. But there's a quiet faith and it calls him a just man, being a righteous man, unwilling, in fact, to publicly shame Mary for what he can see from his perspective being her being unfaithful for how else does one get pregnant after all? One gets pregnant through the regular comings together of a man and a woman. And if he's not the father of the child, then someone else must surely be the father of that child. And so he is considering how to end this relationship quietly because he does not want to bring public shame to her before the whole community. In the Old Testament, in the laws of the Old Testament, it said that he would have the right to bring her before the community and to let her be stoned. Now that law wasn't very much practiced during this time in the gospel, during this time in the ancient world, this idea of stoning an adulteress, stoning someone who had committed adultery. But instead, they would simply give a certificate of divorce. And in fact, they would often sometimes even do it before the whole community, which would be a form of public shaming, of saying, I am divorcing this person, and here is my certificate, and letting the whole community behold it in order to bring public shame and to expose that person for the sins that they had committed. But Joseph, being a just man, is unwilling to publicly shame Mary. He is unwilling to drag her out in front of everyone and accuse her before the people of being unfaithful. And so instead, he is considering and setting his mind toward, toward divorcing her quietly, resolving to do so, to end the betrothal. And that is a picture of righteousness for Joseph in the fact that he has a right to that public shaming, but instead he chooses the path of mercy toward her with regard to this divorce to simply do it privately, to not make a big spectacle of it, to not disgrace her, to do it behind the scenes without having to accuse her before everyone, to just simply let things end, to let things go, and to show mercy toward her in that regard. So that is an act of righteousness, an act of justness toward him, by him, toward her, that is merciful, that reveals his heart toward who God is, that God is one who shows mercy. But as he is considering these things, behold, Matthew says, an angel appeared to him in a dream, 
saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. As Joseph is considering this hard act of doing it privately, of not bringing the, the fullness of communal shame upon Mary, an angel comes to him in a dream. And the angel tells him, Joseph, son of David. Important for us to hear that, Joseph, son of David, for we have just heard in the first part of Matthew a genealogy going from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. Acknowledging that Joseph is in that line, that he is a son of David as well as a son of Abraham, that he comes out of the line of David himself. And so in some sense, he is an heir toward the throne. And so the angel acknowledges that Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Do not be afraid. Do not be scared because that which she has conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come and caused her as a virgin to be pregnant, to be carrying a child. And she will bear a son. For the Holy Spirit to cause such an act, even Joseph would have to step back and recognize there is something special and unique about this child above all other children. That this son is one who comes from God himself. And what does he do? After he hears the angel tell him to not be afraid to take Mary as his wife, to keep Mary as his wife, he does exactly that. In verse 24 it says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel commanded him. And he took his wife. And then he goes on to name this child. Joseph quietly follows through and obeys and is faithful toward what the Lord has commanded him to do. The angel told him, take Mary as your wife. Name this child. And that is immediately what he does. He takes her to be his own wife. Willing to bear the shame now knowing that this is something special and unique from the Lord and that he will name this child. He will name this son. And it's important to recognize what that means for him to take Mary as his wife and then to name this child. It is him claiming Jesus as his own son. He's not disowning Jesus, but his act of naming Jesus is his saying, this child belongs to me. This child is of my flesh now. No questions are to be asked about the origin of this child. All are to believe that if a man names a child, then he is the true father of that child. He says that Jesus belongs to him and that he himself is the father of Jesus. We think of this as an act of adoption, and truly it is, because we had the behind-scenes play-by-play here. We get to see what's happening in the background. But before the community, this is... Joseph simply saying, this is my son, and he will be my heir. He will inherit all that is mine. And thus, everything that belongs to Joseph is now to be given to Jesus through inheritance. For he has claimed Jesus as his own. And so Joseph is making an unbreakable fatherly commitment in saying that Jesus is his true offspring and naming Jesus as his own. And that is the beautiful thing of what Joseph's quiet faith leads him to do. He's willing to take on this responsibility to walk this path of raising the Son of God, of raising this one that is eventually called Emmanuel. He's willing to walk this path quietly. 
And when some of my research for this one commentator I ran across said that he had looked at various pictures of Joseph, looked up various art of the Holy Family, and many of them you see Joseph there adoring the baby Jesus, but then there's a large number of them that show Joseph slumped over in the background. They show him bent over his workbench, cradling his head, asleep and praying. They show him exhausted, going out to bear the work that he must do to care for his family. And I can't imagine how Joseph felt at that time. To know that this child that he is claiming as his own is in some way God with us. That is special and unique that he is the son of God. Maybe not fully quite grasping that he is God in the flesh in the fullest sense that we do this day, but knowing that somehow this child is Yahweh in our midst. And who is he to raise Yahweh himself as a human being? The burden that he must bear, that Mary bore as well, raising this child in this world, guiding and training and teaching, going so far as to train Jesus up in carpentry, in that hard work that Joseph has embraced, training this son of God to do that same work until such time as he is called to save the people from their sins. Joseph walks quietly in his faith, and it's all because he knows that God is going to accomplish his purposes. He knows that God has made a promise and that he is working. And because of who God is, it will come about. And what is that work to come? We hear it in that simple name of Jesus. The angel told him, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. What does this name Jesus mean? When you go back to the Hebrew, it comes from a shortened Hebrew name, Yeshua, which is a putting together of Yahweh, and he saves. It comes together to be that Yahweh saves. Yahweh will work salvation. There's all kinds of questions about how we get a, the letter J and how it goes from having a Y sound at the beginning to having a J sound, and that's a discussion for another time, some other research that I did, that people don't trust this name Jesus. But it is truly the name of our Savior, for that is his name in English. It is a right translation of Yeshua into the Greek, Jesus, into the Latin, Jesus, and then to us when we started using the J, Jesus. He will save his people from their sins and it is simply that coming together of Yahweh will save. Yahweh will work his salvation. And of course, we all know of the great Joshua of the Old Testament, the one who led the people into the promised land, who in that sense was the savior of the people by leading them into battle against the people of that land for God had commanded him to go in and to cleanse the land and to push the people out to destroy the people and to lay claim to that land that God had promised to their father Abraham. And so in that way, he worked salvation for the people by leading them through and into the promised land. And in much the same way, we are saved from our sins through the work of Christ upon the cross, that he cleanses us. He walks through death on our behalf that we might not fear death now, that we might recognize that through that death, we will be further purified by the work of God. That Christ's death upon the cross means that we will ultimately receive life, for he has received life after dying. He has been given an unbreakable kind of life, an enduring kind of life now in his humanity. And he was ascended for our sake to the throne of God. 
But he doesn't just save us from our sins by dying on the cross and wiping away those sins and forgiving us. But he saves us also by giving us his Holy Spirit, for he received the Holy Spirit on our behalf. He received the spirit of holiness, that he might then give that very spirit of holiness to us. To work in us that very righteousness of God that Jesus has in and of himself. And so we are sanctified and made holy through Jesus' death and resurrection because the Holy Spirit can now come to us, can now dwell with us, this Holy Spirit who caused Jesus to be conceived. Jesus accomplishes our salvation in that twofold way, taking us from sin and then putting us on the path of righteousness and giving us new life. He deals with that guilt that has condemned us utterly and completely, taking it away and then giving us the very life that he has running through his body, pouring it into us, imparting to us a renewal of heart, will, and mind, that we might then walk in the path of salvation. That is the work that Jesus came to do, and that is the work that his name, Jesus, points to, salvation, saving us from our sins, and what a glorious transaction it is that this simple name presents to us, the one who will save us from our sins. It's a glorious work that he has accomplished for us. One who is named for our sakes, Yahweh saves. And our quiet faith comes to rest upon that foundation of the work of Jesus. But how is that work even effective for us? And it comes into other words that Matthew presents to us, this other name that he has given. The one who came from above, Emmanuel, God with us. It is because Jesus is God with us that he is God in the flesh, the incarnate God walking upon this earth that he can actually save us from our sins. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. The God who dwells in our midst. The God who comes to be with us, to walk alongside us, to walk the path that we cannot walk, and to lift us up and to carry us forward. And the beautiful part of this name, Emmanuel, is that it bookends Matthew's gospel. Did you realize that? I never thought about it that deeply until I was looking over everything this time that Emmanuel, God with us, bookends the gospel of Matthew. For here in the very first chapter, we are told Emmanuel means God with us. And then if you go over to chapter 28 of the gospel of Matthew, there in those last few verses, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. Jesus promises to fulfill this very name for us, for he cannot help but fulfill it, because he is God. He will be with us. He will be with his disciples. He will walk alongside them. He will lead and guide them. He will fill them with his very holy presence. And likewise for us today, he is with us. And all of that work that Jesus has accomplished on the cross, death, resurrection, and ascension, is contingent upon who he is in himself, God, who became incarnate. The God who would die for our sins through that incarnation and save us. The God who is incarnate that he can be with us always no matter where we are. This is who Jesus is in himself. God with us. In Psalm 139, the psalmist asks, Where can one go to escape from your presence, O God? Down into the depths of Sheol or into the highest heights of heaven. Where can one go? And he concludes, he can't escape from the presence of God. For God is everywhere. And Jesus becomes that for us. The God who is everywhere on our behalf. The God who will not leave our side. In a mysterious way, those words are brought forward. In a positive way. 
In Psalm 139, there's a little bit of negativeness to that, I think, sometimes. For where can we escape when we are trapped in our sins from this holy God, from this perfect God who says he will judge sin? But God deals with that by coming to be with us in the flesh of humanity, becoming incarnate so that he can take away our sins, so that he can renew us, so that he can be in our presence as a holy and just God who is merciful and compassionate and pours his favor upon us. This Emmanuel is with us wherever we may find ourselves because he is truly God with us and God for us. That is the work of Emmanuel. That is the work of Jesus to be with us by dealing with our sins. Even when we want to flee from his presence, he remains with us, extending his salvation, extending his forgiveness, extending his promise to renew our hearts and minds, continually reminding us of the work he has accomplished for us because of who he is, and out of his great love for his creation. C.S. Lewis says that the incarnation is the central event of human history. Everything was preparing for it. Every miracle pointed us toward it. And everything else flows from that one singular event of incarnation. For incarnation means salvation is coming. Without incarnation, salvation does not happen. God cannot die on a cross in his divinity. He must become truly incarnate. He must become a true man in order to accomplish salvation in the way that it must be accomplished. And thus the incarnation is of utmost importance. That's why we have to consider it over and over and over. This reality of God becoming man for our sake. God coming to be with us, to die for us and to claim us as his own. And that is how God demonstrates his love for us. For while we were yet his enemies, Christ died on our behalf. He became incarnate in order that he might then walk that path toward death on our behalf. And out of that death, based on who Jesus is, we can then be freed to live quietly, to have a quiet faithfulness. That we can see that path that Joseph walked, that faithfulness that he exuded, of following the command of the Lord to take Mary as his wife, to take this Son of God, this incarnate God, as his own Son, and to raise him and to name him. We can be encouraged to walk upon that same path, faithfully trusting God to be at work, knowing the calling that he has given us, that he has called us to faithfulness. And it doesn't mean that we have to be loud and boisterous about everything that we do, but that we can have a quiet faith that accomplishes that which is set before us day in and day out. A quiet faithfulness that is predicated upon the work of Jesus, which flows out of who Jesus is, God himself with us. The God who is love coming down to be in our midst. And that is what we look forward to as we prepare during this season of Advent. That we can move forward by faith. That we can repent of our sins and know that they are forgiven because of who Jesus is. That we can turn from that brokenness, turn from that sinfulness, turn from that lawlessness. And move forward in faith. That every area of our lives can be an area that is built up by faith. 
and that we can then live quietly, unknown to the world, to the greater world, what God is doing in us sometimes, but to simply be faithful to what God has given us to do. Knowing that God has accomplished all on our behalf through Jesus. That God knows us by faith. That He knows our faith. Because He has done for us what we could not do. And He has given us Jesus to accomplish that for us. And so we are freed from our sins to walk forward in faithfulness and obedience through what God has done in Jesus. And so our quiet faith can lead us forward. Our quiet faithfulness can guide us forward because God has come to be in our midst. And this God who is Emmanuel is named Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.